0: Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. In his recent book, Judaism in a Digital Age, our guest today, Rabbi Danny Schiff, writes the following. The world around us is changing at breakneck speed. We are hurtling toward the future at a velocity sufficient to ensure that the challenges of tomorrow arrive before we have adequately addressed yesterday's issues. And in many ways, since the beginning of the war on October 7th between Israel and Hamas, the truth of that statement has become even greater in our focus. But stepping back from all the angst that we're feeling in the world today, we ask, what is the project of Judaism? Perhaps the answer is embedded in chapter 19 of the book of Leviticus, where it reads, Kedoshim Tiyu, Ki kadosh Ani Adonai Elohechem, you shall be holy, for I, Adonai your God, am holy. And trying to determine what it means to be holy has been the central project of Judaism throughout the centuries. In earlier ages, the answer was focused on questions of ritual purity and the sacrificial cult. In later ages, it centered around the home, the mikdash me'at, and how we could fashion lives of holiness. The synagogue replaced the holy temple, the sacrifices on the altar replaced by the sacrifices of the heart in words of prayer and blessing. Fundamentally, the answer always lay in determining how the application of Jewish law could be adapted to ever-evolving situations in which we found ourselves during our wanderings across the globe. But in the modern period, that changed again. The evolving awareness of humanity's equal and ultimate value allowed for Jews to be welcomed into Western society in ways that transformed Jewish life. The modern world necessitated the growth of modern expressions of Judaism, giving birth to reform, conservative, modern Orthodox, Reconstructionist, and renewal Jewish movements, each hoping to answer the question, How do we synthesize the dictates of Torah and tradition with the modern world in which we live? The intrinsic values that emanate from Jewish tradition, life and love, wisdom and understanding, compassion and justice, determination and wonder, tranquility and gratitude, freedom and peace, still remain at the bedrock of who we are as a people. And as the world experiences such rapid and transformative change, The questions this new reality is posing cry out for a grounding in Jewish answers to ensure that even as the winds of change blow at hurricane strength, we do not get blown away by them, but remain morally grounded, supplied with the tools to create the ethical and spiritual responses to ensure that humanity does not abandon the essential work of building a world of holiness and that we respond to the call of the prophet Isaiah I, Adonai, in my grace have summoned you and I have grasped you by the hand. I created you and appointed you a covenant people, a light to the nations. And to help us answer this question of how Judaism will respond to the digital age, we turn to Rabbi Dr. Danny Schiff, who is the Gefsky Community Scholar at the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh. He also teaches in his native Australia, and you'll hear that Australian lilt in his voice, and also in Jerusalem, where he finds himself today, and focuses his scholarship on Jewish ethics. He has done so many remarkable things in his career, but most recently, the author of the incredible book that we'll discuss a bit today, Judaism in a Digital Age. Danny, thanks so much for making time to be with us today.
1: My pleasure. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: So you and I had the privilege of, well, I had the privilege, I hope it was a privilege for you, at a meeting back in March where you taught... That we find ourselves in a period of deep concern, and I'm resonating to words that you spoke at the beginning of our meeting back then in March, where you said, they will write about this day for many years to come. We shouldn't come together today to think about the future of the Jewish people without recognizing the significance of this moment. Strife, disunity, and all the implications for the Jewish future, that signifies it almost seems like a distant dream when we think about what was happening in the Jewish world even just a few weeks ago before the attacks of October 7th. And now that you've just arrived in Israel from your home in Australia, tell us what you're seeing. Tell us sort of what it feels like to be in Israel in this extraordinary moment.
1: Well, I think that the, the overwhelming sense here in Jerusalem is one of sadness and one of determination at the same time. There is this traumatic response that is ongoing, even though we're in the 34th day of the war, the, the trauma of the, uh, of the horrors, the utter barbarity, the, the crimes against humanity that were again inflicted on the Jewish people on October 7th, that, that that trauma is very much felt in the, in the atmosphere. And yet there is this, this sense that Jewish history has been going on for millennia and we've been going on because we have been exceptionally resilient and because we know we have a job to do. And you really feel that the, the, the coming together of Israeli society is what is remarkable at this moment, the fact that hundreds of thousands of Israelis got on planes and came back to take part either in service in the IDF or simply to be here to support each other and to volunteer in whatever way they could. That is part of the remarkable reality that we're experiencing right now.
0: So when you think about this sort of renewed sense of mission that I think has not only taken hold amongst the people in Israel who just a few weeks ago were so divided against themselves, people were wondering if we were on the cusp, even potentially, God forbid, of civil war, and the coalescence of that society around this mission of fighting for not just the survival of our people and the security of the land, but for the ideas and ideals on which that land is predicated, is a mission that I think is taking hold also of the Jewish people, certainly here in America and around the world. And you write in your book about the idea that in the last 30 years, we find ourselves kind of in a different world, which you are calling the digital age. And so I want to ask just as we begin our conversation today, what is the digital age? What defines it? What took place or happened in the early 1990s that moved us from what has been called the modern period, which you say is over, into this new age?
1: I think that, that, that that's a pivotal question. And, I, and I, I'm not the only one who is making the claim that we're in this new time period. Other, other thinkers are, uh, are are really focusing on that reality as well and on the on the most simple level it's plainly a change in technology once we move into the interconnected era of the online experience and the reality that all of us now carry mobile devices that really can tap into virtually the entirety of human knowledge that 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 is a transition that is truly remarkable, and we can add many layers to the technology story. But that's just the beginning, because the technology story, of course, really transforms the way that we come to think about who we are and our place in the world and how we function as human beings, which has had a dramatic transformative impact on virtually every area of life that you can imagine, from the economy and the way we do business to our marital relations and our sexual partners and how we find love and the uh, our relationship to concepts like privacy and authority and identity, all of these have been transformed by the digital age. So when we do an analysis of all those various different features, and we notice that they are collectively vastly transformed from most of what was going on in the pre-1990 or thereabouts period, I think it's appropriate for us to acknowledge that we've entered a remarkably different period within which the responses that we give are vastly different to anything that went before.
0: So then thinking about that, how would you sort of define what is different between modernity and the digital age? So if you think about modernity as being this time when we realized fundamental equality and the essential worth of individual human life and all of those truths that sort of define the modern era, How does the digital age differ from modernity?
1: Well, in in modernity, we, we experienced some really remarkable transformations. The Jewish people particularly experienced emancipation. We became part of broad societies, nation states, and there were all these extraordinary ideas that were raised by the Enlightenment, but still... We were very much bounded by place and time. We, we, really, we really couldn't transcend and interact with people all around the world, and nor could we design our environment, curate our existence in ways, in which in whichever way we, we, cho- we, cho- we choose to. And much of what is possible in the digital age has taken us exponentially beyond the openings that were available to us in the analog environment. And precisely because of that, what we now have is what one might call a startup mentality. That startup mentality, by the way, impacts our lives from top to bottom, not just people who are actually working in startups, but this notion that innovation has to be part and parcel of everything we do And that we are constantly pushing forward, always in an accelerated manner, to try to transform our environment. Although we now regard that as our new normal, that wasn't how we lived prior to 1990. And that's why we are in this situation where many people just find it very difficult to keep up with all the developments around about them, not just technological, but also in the society and the type of connections and relationships that we, that we, um, that we utilize.
0: So thinking about all of those changes and the ways in which our society and just the way that we live in the world has evolved in the last 30 years or so, now we sort of lay that on top of what's happening right before our eyes in the conflict in Israel. So you see that today war is being waged on a whole bunch of different fronts. So there is certainly the battlefield, the reality of what's taking place on the ground. But for those of us who are not in Otef Aza, right, who are not in the Gaza envelope, the war is still going on. And we're seeing that war take place on not only college campuses or in public media, but certainly in cyberspace, in social media. And there's been all kinds of things like conspiracy theories and falsehoods that really blanket social media, a lot of mistrust in the news and where we get our news and what's actually happening. So when you think about Israel's conflict and the war right now with Hamas, how is that war different in the digital age than it might have been a few decades ago?
1: In virtually every way imaginable. Not only is the technology that we utilize to actually fight <clears throat> on the battlefield quite different from what it was in Israel's previous wars, but, but as you rightly suggest, the entire environment in which we find ourselves from beginning to end has, has altered. Let, let's just consider that the 3,000 Hamas terrorists that poured into Israel on October the 7th were all equipped with body cameras. Those body cameras, of course, were filming in real time the atrocities they committed. They were uploading that as they were actually carrying out their brutal, macabre massacre. They were uploading it to social media so that around the world you could witness their barbarity as it was being carried out. That presents the battlefield and the way in which people come to apprehend the significance of these acts in completely different ways from simply reading a newspaper account of what happened sometime after the events. And then as you rightly point out, we're in a social media environment that of course has been well, us for 18 years now, but it's changed dramatically over those 18 years. And just to point to the obvious platform that I think is the most critical one here, TikTok, which is plainly the platform of preference for those in the 18 to 24 year old age group, TikTok, has proven to be a platform, obviously sponsored by the Chinese Communist Party, has proven to be a platform that essentially aggregates, puts together an enormous amount of disinformation or misleading information. And that has had a profound effect on public opinion, especially among younger people. and We see that in the responses that people are having to the war. None of that was part of the reality of what it meant to fight a war both on the battlefield and in the hearts and minds of people prior to this time.
0: And I think in battling all of that misinformation and in confronting what is actually happening versus the way what's happening is being packaged. There's all different kinds of ways in which that conflict is being warped in the consciousness, I think, of people who are experiencing it through screens, whether it's the screens they hold in their hands or the screens that are hanging on their walls or the screens of their computers uh, and whoever is putting out content on those screens. The moral questions, you know, are screaming at us here. You have millions of people in this country and around the world who are aligning themselves with the cause of the Palestinian people, attempting to lay paradigms like colonialism or decolonialism or narratives of oppressor and oppressed onto a complexity that just doesn't fit those normal or even, I think, sort of cookie cutter constructs. And then you have apologists for Hamas that range from celebrating the attacks of October 7th to a whole range of what I'll call yes but isms. Well, yes, that was horrible, but. uh, And at the same time, you're also seeing the ugliness of Israeli chauvinism and bigotry, where you see attacks by right wing settlers on Palestinian towns and villages in Judea and Samaria. And so, in the midst of this whole conflict, which many are terming an existential conflict that Israel is engaged in and is forced to fight, what can Judaism bring to this moment? What can it bring to the Israelis who are fighting? What can it bring to Jews like us who are thousands of miles away, but feel such a deep connection to what's happening and to the larger discussions about what does it mean to be a human being in this moment.
1: Judaism begins with some extraordinarily fundamental ideas. And one of them, perhaps the most core of all, is our devotion to life itself. The The Torah begins with an Eitzchayim, and uh, in the middle, it tells us that we should live through the commandments and towards the end, it tells us you should choose life, and it's life and life and life. And 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 therefore the, the relevance of the Jewish focus on the beauty of life and of trying to elevate life, as you said earlier in your remarks about holiness, the relevance of that clearly is the whole notion that on the Israeli side inspired by that rich history through the centuries, we are absolutely determined to save as many lives as possible on both sides. That's the reason why we have an iron dome. That's the reason why every Israeli apartment is mandated to have a secure space, which doesn't, of course, exist in Gaza. And that's the reason why the Israel Defense Forces have been very, very devoted to trying to ensure that there is a minimum of civilian casualties on the other side, acknowledging obviously that warfare in close quarters is inevitably going to cause some amount of civilian
0: casualties. I heard an amazing story um, that was reported by the BBC that a Palestinian man got a phone call on his cell phone From an Israeli intelligence operative speaking in absolutely perfect fluent Arabic, saying, We're going to bomb this building and we need you to clear everybody out. These are the three buildings, not his home, but it was three other buildings that were going to be attacked. And he didn't believe it. And he said, Prove to me that you're real. Send a, a dummy rocket. And within like a few seconds, Israel had sort of given him the proof that he needed. And he was able to clear out those buildings. And there were no civilian casualties when Israel took out these Hamas installations. And he says, how do you know that these are Hamas installations? And the the guy said, listen, we can see things that you can't see. But the BBC reported that this Israeli intelligence operative was on the phone with this Palestinian man for an hour, making sure that everybody in those buildings was safe in order that they could still perform the mission that they had to perform. What else in Judaism do you think we need to bring to this conflict?
1: Well, I think that, that, uh, that, that just, just to finish that, that, that idea, uh, if, if, the, if the Hamas leadership had used the billions and billions of dollars of foreign aid that they have received over the years to construct shelters for their people instead of tunnels for their fighters, then the rate of civilian death in Gaza would be close to zero. That's why it's close to zero in Israel. And therefore, what you see is a very sharp contrast between the Jewish and Israeli devotion to preserving life on both sides of the, of the border vis-a-vis the Hamas idea, which is to sacrifice as many fighters as possible in the name of the cause and to sacrifice their own civilians in the name of giving Israel uh, a dark uh, image in the in the world. So that, 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 that contrast I think is, um, is really fundamental. The, the other notion which I, I think we mustn't lose sight of is there are 240 hostages in Gaza. They were seized on October the 7th and among them, as you're aware, babies, children, Holocaust survivors, people of all ages, uh, innocent people who are in the most horrendous, life-threatening difficulty imaginable. And we have in Judaism a very long history of halachic Jewish legal writing on the question of pidyon shivuyim, of of the real importance of trying to redeem captives. We, th- we think of God we have we have imagery of God in our liturgy as being the one who will help bring about the redemption of captives because we understand uh, just how painful and how hopeless that plight can be uh, and, and and therefore I think that the that the insights of Jewish tradition on the importance of these humanitarian ideals have actually been incredibly important, all the way down to the down to the 21st century and and certainly my my point about the digital age is that we have to adapt some of our thinking to the digital age but it's also that we have to bring some of our classic ideas to bear upon some of the new ways of doing things in the digital age because that framework of morality and holiness remains ever relevant
0: so thinking about that what are The biggest questions the digital age is going to present that Judaism needs to answer?
1: The digital age is going to present questions in the latter part of the 21st century that we haven't even begun to think about. But the fundamental core issue is what does it mean to be human? What are the parameters? of our own humanity. And let me illustrate exactly what I mean by that. We're gonna have technology in the second half of the 21st century, which will allow us, for example, to replace our arms and our legs with improved technological versions that are much stronger and much more accurate than our organic arms and legs. You'll be able to climb further and reach further and see better. And and the, the interesting question that many will contemplate given that medicine always was considered the pathway to healing, is medicine now going to become not only a pathway to healing, but the pathway to improving? And is there any improving that we would allow for, which would actually transcend what it means to be human? Are we still human beings if we start to replace body parts, the, with far more sophisticated extensions that then allow us to become something different. And probably the ultimate question that we're going to face is we our, our medical advances and our ability to intervene in human sicknesses and to replace the various different uh, parts of our bodies that wear down is probably going to greatly extend the lifespan. After all, we we extended it by a couple of decades in the West during the 20th century. So there's every reason to expect, since developments seem to be proceeding on an exponential type of curve, there's every reason to expect that if technology continues at the pace at which it's currently going, that before the end of this century, people will live well beyond 150 and perhaps more than that, and that raises all sorts of questions about what is the place of death, is death something that is welcome or something to be pushed off, how long should we live, what happens if somebody doesn't want to live that long and would prefer to step away from life voluntarily, these are all fundamental existential questions that we have to grapple with in ways that uh, we ha- we have never considered before but really fundamentally go to the heart of that issue of what does it mean to be human and my fundamental claim is that as Jews that's supposed to be our area of expertise
0: and indeed it is but one of the things that you assert in your book is a question and a doubt that reform and conservative judaism or modern Judaism as sort of the umbrella for all of those different expressions might be is not really equipped to address this moment in history. So what's missing from reform and conservative Judaism or specifically reform Judaism that you think uh, is, is intrinsic or the tool necessarily to meet the moment?
1: Well, first, first I want to point out that I am not critical of reform or conservative Judaism, in the book. In fact, I, 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 I applaud the reform conservative movements and what they've given to the Jewish people through a century and a half. I'm simply making the point, which I think is pretty clear, and that is that the reform and conservative movements are both now in decline, and I'm explaining the reason for their decline. The reason for their decline is they came into being at a time when horses and buggies were in the streets and we're now in a time when almost autonomous vehicles will become normative and the immediate impulse of both those movements was always to help in doing what they were good at originally and what they were good at originally was helping jews adapt to the surrounding world helping jews to move into mass society and helping helping jews to incorporate all the new ideas of modernity into their Judaism. And my claim is, my my idea about this is that the digital age is going to require a very different type of impulse than simply adapting to our society and accepting the ways in which our society is delivering all sorts of new technologies. In fact, I think that... This digital age probably requires us to go back to a classic mode in which Judaism used to operate, which was a countercultural mode, a mode in which we really held up the developments in human life and questioned whether they were going in the right direction or not. That's not the fundamental way in which Reform and Conservative Judaism uh, were structured. And it's not part of their DNA. And that's why I don't think that they're well adapted for the digital age going forward.
0: So it's interesting and and almost paradoxical that one of the prescriptions that you make for Judaism being able to address this moment in which we're hurtling forward at, as you say, breakneck speed is to actually go backward a little bit. Uh, And one of the things that you write about is the role of halacha in Jewish law. Which is, I think, an interesting idea. So, you know, for years and years and years, the number one question a Jew was always inspired to ask is what do I do now? Right? What does the law tell me I'm supposed to do in this moment or in this moment or in this uh, situation or that situation? And the answer was in the book. And it was either in the Torah Shabichtav, the Torah that was written, or the Torah Shabal Pei, the Torah that was passed on and then eventually constructed and codified in the rabbinic law, the mission of the Gemara, and then later interpretations. And as the rings of the tree of Jewish law and lore evolved, you wanted an answer? Look it up. If you didn't know how to look it up, you asked your rabbi. If your rabbi didn't know how to look it up, he asked his rabbi. And then you have the advent of this thing called the printing press. And the printing press created this amazing thing called a book that anybody could have, which meant I didn't have to go to somebody else to tell me what to think. I could sit alone in my own house and learn how to think for myself, which in many ways I think was probably uh, the seed that blew, uh, bloomed into modernity. And so when we think about that idea of autonomy, that idea of rooting authority not outside of ourselves, but rooting authority inside of ourselves in the autonomous right of an individual to make their own moral calculations, Judaism evolves from uh, something that had, I would say, governing control to perhaps something that had an advisory role. Because the autonomous self was the one that would be the ultimate decisor of what was morally right or wrong or what I was supposed to do. So have we come to the end of what autonomy is means? Are we supposed to now give up our autonomy? Are we supposed to now cede our moral decision making over back to the book or back to an outside source? How do we move forward as Jews vis-a-vis Jewish law or the, the role that autonomy and individual freedom plays? But as
1: I'm sure you'll agree, that's only one half of the equation. The other half of the equation that you didn't mention is that we also cherish community. So given that we cherish community, autonomy has always had to be tempered to some extent by a commitment to community, because if you had absolute autonomy, you'd you'd have a whole bunch of individuals doing whatever they wanted to do without any coherence among them as to how they would coordinate and what exactly would be accepted standards for a wedding or a funeral or or any other event. So autonomy has always been balanced. Even in in our reform and conservative movements today, there is autonomy, but there's also a balance of that with you have to understand that this is what we do in certain contexts, and you don't get to necessarily make choices that are endlessly open. And, And what I'm thinking about going forward is that we are particularly challenged in the digital age by the concept of community. It is one of the great ironies that we live in the most hyper-connected generation in history and yet the loneliest generation in history. The Surgeon General this year warned of an epidemic of loneliness and the effects that that's having on people's health. And I think that one of the things that, that we need to concentrate on, we the, the Jewish people need to concentrate on, is this idea that has been core to our functioning throughout the millennia, and that is how do you really create authentic community in the digital age? And when I'm thinking about halakha, I think about halakha not in traditional terms that might be appealing in a yeshiva environment, but I'm thinking about halakha in terms of what are the norms that we might agree to in a contemporary digital age community, wherein we are seeking to have an impact for good in terms of the ways in which our humanity might be advanced, how do we cooperate on that sort of project and what norms will it require of us to cleave to setting aside our autonomy in order to get a job done together?
0: And I love this idea that we need to recenter ourselves around community as a commanding force. You know, there's almost like this pendulum shift where the commanding voice used to come out of the text, right? And then the commanding voice sort of swung to come out of my heart, Right. As an individual. Right. In many ways, people ask me all the time, what's the difference between an Orthodox Jew and a Reformed Jew? And I usually will say, well, an Orthodox Jew believes that the commanding voice comes out of the book and a an Reformed Jew believes the commanding voice wells up from within, not from the outside, but from the inside. And what you're talking about, which is an idea that in and of itself is probably about 100 years old from the writings of Martin Buber and Franz Rosenzweig of the idea that actually, no, the commanding voice is found in dialogue, is found in community, in the relationships, those holy web of relationships that we make through bonds of love, that we cement with each other, that we nurture with each other, that we dance with each other. And I, I, I'm i so struck by that idea because in some ways, the digital world has created pathways for the formation of community that we never imagined. I think about WhatsApp groups where people are constantly checking in with each other no matter where they live in the world. Or I'm thinking of my neighborhood community's little page on Facebook where we kvetch about noise of pickleball or whatever else is going on in our neighborhood. Right. But, but
1: but can I, can I I interrupt you? I mean, I, 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 I I wonder if that's really community because if that were really community, then we shouldn't have so much loneliness. People should be able to sit at home and be in touch with the pickleball group on WhatsApp and, uh, uh, and, 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 and with the, with the synagogue through zoom and it, that they should feel that fully makes their communal existence a, a, a whole one. And yet I think that that's not the experience at all. That's why we have all this loneliness despite our interconnectedness. I question whether the idea that you can have online community in any rich way really makes much sense.
0: And I think you're absolutely right about that, because I think that there is sort of this crying need for authentic community that's not mediated, where people have 3D connections as opposed to 2D connections. I'm so grateful for technology because it allows me to have this conversation with you while you're in Jerusalem and I'm here in Boca Raton. And I'm so grateful for the advent of technologies like Zoom that allowed us during the pandemic to continue to meet and to learn and to dialogue, even when we were all kind of trapped in our own homes. But there is something about that unmediated experience of connection that is is sort of difficult to replace. So one of the things I would ask is, what can Judaism bring that can ground us in something that feels real and authentic, in the midst of times where we're watching uh, things like artificial intelligence and other technologies really transform what real means.
1: Well, I, I, I think that, that this this challenge goes up and down our our experiences. Uh, you, you you raised the what happened during COVID, the 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 reality that synagogue services all went into a virtual modality. And that that was great during COVID. But now that we're beyond the emergency, there are many congregations, probably the majority of non-authorized congregations that are keeping that going. So is it the same experience for an individual to sit at home and watch a service in much the same way that they might watch Netflix on a screen where there are all sorts of other distractions going on and they're not in holy space, vis-a-vis that same individual coming to a holy space, architecturally designed to invoke the divine and together, physically together with uh, with other people. I would argue that those are two very different experiences and yet our technological world and the people who are creating it don't think very much about the implications for the actual way in which this will impact the nature of what it means to be human. We don't want, I don't think, to create a world in which the richness of human relationship is all mediated by technological devices. And yet we are unthinkingly hurtling in precisely that direction and that's why i'm calling for judaism to be a type of corrective in that sort of thinking
0: so beyond the idea of authentic communal interaction what else does judaism need to bring to this moment to help us address the moral questions that this new age is presenting
1: well i think that judaism needs to bring some of its classic ideas and uh, and and we ne- we need to start discussing but let me give you an example. What, what we have discovered since the digital age arrived is there's been a massive um, increase in the number of people who are living by themselves. And that's not because of divorce and it's not because of people dying and, uh, and so their, their spouse becoming a widow. It's rather because people are choosing to live by themselves. And it raises the fascinating question given that people can now economically do fine on their own, both men and women, and given that people can have sexual relations and children without needing to be married, what exactly is Judaism going to say about the institution of marriage and about the structure of family in this new reality? Are we going to say that Everything that was true in terms of our expectation that people would partner and get married in previous centuries remains the reality, even though that's not the direction in which society is going? Or are we going to go with the trends that we see around about us? And, and there are a host of issues. You could take the issue of privacy, for example. Privacy as we knew it 30 years ago has eroded tremendously and that has a really powerful impact on what it means to shape our own personality, our own identity. Are we content to live in a world in which others know, other corporations for the most part, know all about us and can access our every move? Is, it, is, that, is that is that enhancing our humanity or diminishing our humanity? I'm not... Here to answer the questions directly, so much as to say, I think our tradition has a great deal to say about these very significant areas, but we haven't begun to respond.
0: And I think that part of what we saw towards the end of the modern period and the beginning of the digital period is this sorting of people into private spaces and also curated spaces where you are kind of sequestered in communities, virtual communities and real communities where people are all just like you. So when you see, for example, the growth of the suburban subdivision where everybody who lives with you is at about the same socioeconomic value because the houses are all about the same size and the same shape as opposed to mixed communities where you might have people of different socioeconomic backgrounds or wherewithals living in and amongst each other. People are segregating themselves into groups where they vote the same way, they read the same newspapers, they listen to the same podcasts or the same television or the same media outlets, and they're not even necessarily allowing themselves to be exposed to ideas that are beyond that sort of scope of what makes me happy. And so, you know, part of what I sort of wonder about is to what degree does Judaism teach love your people, be with your people, be with your kind? And to what degree does Judaism sort of push us to try to f- establish dialogue and community with people? Who don't think like we do who don't believe like we do you know i'm thinking of ideas in the talmud that say run from a place where there's no torah right go to the people who are like you and at the same time we also have a tradition that says we metagir you have to love the people that are not like you and i'm sort of wondering if we're going to have a healthy society how much segregation is useful like having a jewish state that is a state for our people with our mores with our religious traditions at the core and how much is it important for us to sort of recognize the value of all the different tiles in the great mosaic of humanity
1: well the answer to your question is yes right uh, gums ever gums it Bo- both things are important and trying to balance between the two is the is the tricky part you you're really i think putting your finger on a question about identity and and what what does it mean to have an identity if a person says I'm Jewish. What what exactly does that mean? Does that mean that they have a Jewish parent? Or is it actually making a statement about the uh, community with whom they want to identify and with whom they want to get something done, that they want to achieve something with that community? I think that rich identities, and I'm not talking only Jewish here, I think rich identities are preferable to weak ones, and rich identities come from where from an identity formation process that leads to you having a very healthy understanding of who you are and who your people are and where you belong and what you're trying to do, and also acknowledging that everything about that is going to be strengthened when you learn from outside sources and are enriched by other people's and other experiences. That 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 I think is diversity at its strongest. But many people mistake diversity to mean that it should mean sameness. I think it actually would imply that every individual brings a very strong and clear identity to the table so we can share in the richness of. The, the identity of the other, not in the sameness of the people who have sort of dissolved into a, uh, into a very thin identity formation.
0: And I think that that's part of the slogan that we often see in our community where we talk about unity is not uniformity. But I think what you're calling for to me is something that is so important, which is that you have to sort of hold two things at the same time. One is you have to really do the work to know who you are. And you really have to know the work to know where you came from and and to really plumb the depths of the richness of the storehouse of Jewish wisdom and tradition to understand the worldview that has shaped us, whether we're aware of it or not, for generations, for hundreds and thousands of years. And to Know the text and to know the traditions that you come from, and then to not embrace that as a chauvinistic idea of, well, I am the possessor of the truth and too bad for you, or God forbid the idea that you are lesser than me because you don't possess the truth that I have, but instead to then try to cultivate a curiosity that says, well, I know what I know. And I know what I've come from and where I've believed, but to try to create those authentic encounters so that I can approach someone else with curiosity and say, teach me, show me, let's compare and contrast what it is that we've been taught and see if there's more truth and understanding that can emerge from that dialogue. How does Judaism teach us to get beyond the boundaries of those Sort of national or religious communities to begin to embrace that curiosity of the other.
1: I think that the most profound reason why Moses became the leader of the Jewish people and four out of the five books of the Torah really uh, are centered on his, uh, his his odyssey with the Jewish people is because the tradition sees him as being the most humble person imaginable he is he is a, he is a model of humility and and humility in the jewish tradition is all about simsum. it's all about re- reducing the space that we take up one of one of the the great problems of the social media age is that we're all encouraged to be marketers of ourselves we're all encouraged to 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 really push our brand and put ourselves out there and remind the world how special we are. And I think the Jewish tradition actually would have us think in very different terms, have us think in terms of what humility and modesty really means. And the reason why I answer your question that way is because that's what I think really leads to learning. Learning is all about, I don't have all the answers. Learning is all about, I am curious as to how other people address the issue with which I'm grappling, because if you know all the answers, and you are already the repository of all wisdom, then there's no space for anybody else. And that's why I think that uh, humility and modesty, which our tradition actually does emphasize, albeit Jews aren't very good at it, nevertheless, I think at its core, calls upon us, and I think you see this in the Talmud, in, in many places, where the, the rabbis have interaction with surrounding society, people from other, from other backgrounds, in order to learn from them and do learn from them, right? Uh, Moses himself, of course, takes the advice of his non-Jewish father-in-law, and that proves to be pivotal in terms of moving the people forward. So, so I, I think it all begins with an attitude, and that attitude is in many ways a great challenge to the digital age in which we live, which is taking us in a very different direction.
0: So I'll ask you one last question, Danny, as you find yourself in Israel in this difficult period and now the second month of the war responding to the atrocities of October 7th. What are the essential questions you're asking yourself today?
1: The the, the short-term question is once the war is over, will we be able to come together once again? Because plainly we've gone through a 2023 of enormous Jewish whiplash, as you pointed out. Prior to October 7th, people kept raising the question of were we heading towards civil war? And after October 7th, the society has come together in this embrace which is uh, almost unprecedented in its ability to support each other. And and the question that that I'm interested in considering, the short-term question I'm interested in considering is what, what will that mean once the war is over? Do we go back to a state of real division or do we maintain some of the, uh, some of, some of the unity? And the other thing I'm, I'm thinking about is have, having now passed Shloshim, the, the 30 days after October 7th, where we're, we're still very much looking back at that experience and bewildered by our losses, it's time to start looking forward again, um, albeit gingerly and very tentatively, and to start to think about where the Jewish future heads and to remind ourselves that we didn't get this far in Jewish history by being pessimistic about our chances of achieving our goals. Uh, we th- th- it's not by accident that Hatikva, the hope is the anthem of the Jewish people and is being sung so regularly. Uh, I-, I think that we we have to start thinking about what exactly do we do going forward in order to make sure that we have stability and security for the Jewish people, here in Israel and around the Jewish world, and that we can focus more importantly, not just on security and fighting anti-Semitism, but on being the sort of inspiring Jewish world that I think we're designed to be.
0: I encourage everyone to go out and get a copy of Rabbi Schiff's book called Judaism in a Digital Age. It's published by Palmgrave Macmillan. Danny, we look forward to hopefully having you here at Temple Beth El. But in the meantime, in Israel, we ask that you please stay safe. Essential Questions has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reiser, Amanda Brentzel, Jake Harris, Susan Stallone and Eliza List. Special thanks to Jake Harris for original music and Isabella Tenenboim for the original artwork. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Bethel's website at tbeboca.org slash questions You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can spread the word, and we certainly want to know what your essential questions are. Email us at eq at tbeboca.org. We look forward to reading your comments and to addressing your ideas in future episodes. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks so much for listening to the Essential Questions podcast.